I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we uh, pick up where we left off, which is in chapter 29. We're going to, at the end of chapter 29 there in verse 31, and we're going to go into chapter 30. Uh, This week I I, I read a very interesting article written by this fitness coach uh, about those who actually put the, push themselves the hardest uh, in in fitness, uh, and so in this article he has he makes two distinctions between a natural athlete and a professional athlete, or, or um, athletes with a natural gift and ability, and athletes who approach fitness with um, professionalism. All right, I'll explain what that means. Uh, and so in his experience, those who are considered natural athletes are those born with like a natural natural athleticism, right? Or or those whose profession depends on their their fitness. And what he found was that those like blessed with the gift, you know, who don't really have to exert themselves very hard to be athletic or to perform well, uh, are the least committed to pushing themselves harder and further. They kind of take it for granted that they're athletic or fit or whatever, and they don't feel the need to push themselves. And so... Uh, for this coach who he designs like really strenuous uh, fitness programs, he, he found that, that the studs, like the guys who come in and like are really like buff and, you know, like the most athletic looking are the ones who quit early. In contrast, it was those who were least special who committed to the program and, and pushed themselves the most, right? So they didn't have any special gift. Uh, they weren't the most fit, some of them weren't fit at all, and or even the strongest or the best looking. And he calls them professional athletes, not because they're like fitness or whatever is their profession, but they approach fitness as like with a professionalism, right? They they know they aren't special, so they can't rely on like accomplishments or gifting to get where they want to go. Uh, and they know they have to work work hard. They, they can't take shortcuts. They approach it with a professionalism, right? So in other words, in his experience, it was those who already had it all together, who had what they wanted, who were the most likely to quit early, whereas it was those who lacked special gifts or unique qualities who saw it through and who pushed themselves farther. Really interesting and ironic, isn't it? I'm sure we can all think of stories of famous athletes who are maybe known for their laziness during practice and and things like that, who just have their hands kissed um, or blessed or whatever. This is a little like what we run into here in this part of Genesis. Jacob, in the last chapter, is tricked by Laban. Uh, and he and what Jacob does is he's, he works 14 years and he ends up marrying Laban's two daughters. Even though he only wants to marry the one, Rachel, he ends up marrying Leah and then Rachel. And this chapter... Right shows God's working out His promise to enlarge the family of Abraham and bring about the promised seed. And He does that through these two women, Leah and Rachel. One of them, Rachel, has it all together. Uh, we're told that she's beautiful, right? Explicitly, she's beautiful. And, and she's the one with all of her husband's love. The other, Leah doesn't have anything special about her. In fact, we're told explicitly that she is unattractive. And she didn't have her husband's love. She's actually despised. 
And and these two sisters compete and, and perform for affection and attention and worth. And while neither is perfect, guess what happens? It's the weak one that ends up figuring it out in the end. It's the one that's unspecial that gets what she's looking for at the end of the day. What we see in this chapter is a struggle between contentment and competition. And I want to take this idea of special versus unspecial to show how our hearts search for contentment. Uh, and, and, and what helps our contentment and what hurts it. What kills contentment and what cultivates it. So I want to direct everybody's attention to their Bibles uh, in Genesis chapter 29. It's not on the screen today, but... Uh, follow along, uh, you can listen to me read or follow along in your own Bible, but we'll start reading in ch- uh, chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Billah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Billah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name J- Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. 
in this text, we see two ways that contentment is killed and two ways that contentment is cultivated. And, and I want to focus on the negative aspects first. So, so first of all, we see that contentment is killed by performance. Contentment is killed by, killed by performance. We were introduced in this passage in, in chapter 29, verse 31 uh, of Genesis, that, uh, and we're reminded in, in verse 31 that Leah was hated. And, and the point uh, is, is to show that she stands in direct contrast to, to Rachel. Rachel was loved and Leah was unloved. And, and this word, it kind of has a, a range of meaning and it could mean that there was a great deal of resentment toward Leah. Uh, it's the same word that is used later when Joseph's brothers hate him and want to uh, kill him and they end up selling him in slavery. It's, it's the same word. So Leah is in an unloving marriage. Her, her husband and even her own sister resent her. Apparently, it was common to show favoritism uh, to like one wife or another in, in this day and age. Uh, and obviously, we, we saw in the last few chapters that Isaac and Rebekah had a very hard time. Uh, well, not, it's not like they even struggled with it. I mean, they played favorites just outright. Uh, and so now we see that it's coming out in Jacob with, with his wives. He's also playing favorites. But we can see uh, how this affects Leah and her struggle to gain her husband's acceptance in the way that she names her children. So, uh, so the Lord saw that she was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived, verse 32, and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction... For now, my husband will love me. What's happening is that Leah is trying to use childbearing to earn her husband's affections. In other words, her worth is being tied up in her performance. She's trying to perform for her husband so that her husband will love her. Look at how she names the next few in the next few verses. Uh, verse 33, she conceived again. And bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and, and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was Levi. She has another son, Judah, and will come back to him. But, but Leah kind of struggles with this performing throughout her life. It doesn't totally go away. We have this really, really excellent biblical scene where the, the two sisters essentially haggle over who gets the husband to sleep with them that night. Um, honestly, I think, it's, I think it's really funny that this whole mandrakes thing is really shady, really weird, and like, I mean, you, you can't make that stuff up, right? Le Leah is so upset over this that when Rachel asks, like, hey, give me some mandrakes, she's like, like, you've already taken my husband, now you, you want to take my mandrakes? Like, you can't have both. Man, the Bible, Bible was running episodes of The Bachelor 4,000 years before TV ever came along. Uh, and, and mandrakes were a widely used aphrodisiac at this time, so Leah makes this trade uh, to Rachel to sleep with Jacob in exchange for these. But still, even through that, she's performing for Jacob's affections. 
when she names one son uh, Issachar in, in verse 18 of chapter 30. Um, God has given me my wages because I gave uh, my servant to my husband. And then another son in, in verse 20, Zebulun. Uh, and she says, uh, now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Leah was stuck in a cycle of performing. She was trying to attain something she could never achieve and it left her empty. This, this is what happens when our worth is tied to a human's feelings about us or, his, or their feelings toward us. Whether it's a, a spouse's love, a kid's acceptance or the praise of man, Performing for this so that we feel like we're enough will only leave us empty and kill any kind of joyful contentment that we have. This is especially true when we try to perform enough to be good enough for God. Contentment is killed by performance. Fleshly performance that tries to find worth in what we do for someone else will always, always leave us empty. But, but Leah, actually, in this chapter, uh, comes off looking a lot better than her sister Rachel. Rachel, uh, uh, Leah is concerned with her husband's affections. Rachel only wants to be better than her sister. So second, our second point is contentment is killed by competition. Rachel is loved. Leah is unloved. Uh, Rachel is infertile, Leah is fertile. So in chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, what was her emotion? What was her main emotion? She envied her sister. Rachel is in in competition with her, her sister. She's comparing herself to someone else and has to have what they have or better, no matter the cost. And guess what happens when you start comparing yourself to other people and competing with them? You start blaming everybody else for your problems. That's what she does to to Jacob. She said, Jacob, give me children or I shall die. She's casting the blame on Jacob. Now, I'm sure Rachel wanted children, right? It it was very uh, natural in this day and age for for a woman to just really badly want children. But this chapter presents one of her primary motives as envy. Like so deep down, what she most wants is to just be better than her sister. That's kind of what makes our political scene so rotten right now. Like we have lots of politicians across the spectrum who are only interested in trying to be better than their opponents rather than actually trying to make life better for citizens. And uh, we see the anger that results from all of that too. Not to be outdone, Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob. And, and I just got to say again, like uh, in the last chapter, he marries Leah, doesn't even know it until he wakes up in the morning because he's such a dog. And, and like, he is just a dog in this chapter too, man. Like, he's just like, 
But okay, I'll just sleep with your servant. And Leah's like, here, sleep with my servant. So he's like sleeping all around with all these women. And he, uh, the only thing that he does is like, what? I'm not God. Like, way to go, Jacob. Anyway, she gives her, that's supposed to be funny. All right. Uh, and, and, and her competitive spirit is, is seen and reflected in what she names her, the kids that, that Bilhah has on her behalf. So um, in verse 6, God has judged me. Right, uh, uh, you can hear um, kind of a self-vindication. Like, God has judged me and vindicated me. And has also heard my voice and, and given me a son. And then in verse 8 with Naphtali, listen to what she says. With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. That's another thing about competition. She's... Not at all concerned about her sister's struggles. Like not, at, not at all concerned that her sister is unloved by their husband. From, from the outside, Rachel is looking at Leah's situation and judging that Leah is undeserving of everything that she's getting. Like she only cares to put Leah lower. Uh, when I was in college at Ole Miss, I'm, a, I'm sad to say I was a part of a fraternity. And um, that's what all the fraternities ever did. Like, in order to make themselves look better or feel better, they just put down all other fraternities and everybody else, and it was just ridiculous. And so that's essentially what Rachel's doing here. And at the end of it all, Rachel finally gets pregnant, right at the end of this, uh, this passage here. She finally gets pregnant, but even then... Com- comparison and competition is killing her resentment. Look at verse 24. She says, uh, God has taken away my reproach and he called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And that's, that's not a bad desire, but from what we've seen of Rachel's heart, this is only because she's dissatisfied with what her sister has received in comparison with her. She's like, now I have a son, give me more. I want to, I want to top my sister. That's what competition looks like. It's comparing yourself to someone else or their situation. Like so, comparing yourself to the that neighbor or uh, to that other wife or that other husband or that other parent, that other worker, and determining they don't deserve what they have, and that you should have more. And so you belittle them. Maybe in your mind or in front of other people. Blame other people for your problems. And in the end, you'll never, ever be satisfied. And I think ultimately why we'll never be satisfied when we do this is because competition like this is rooted in unbelief. God, in His sovereign grace, has granted to others what He has not granted to you. And He has granted to you what He has sovereignly seen fit. But when we compare and compete, we're effectively saying that God isn't good and He's unjust. He's withheld from us and He's not good for that and He's not just. just. And we make ourselves sovereign in His place by saying, we should get this, they should not. It prevents us from receiving by faith 
what His sovereign, judicious, and loving hand has decided to give us. So content, uh, competition kills contentment. And what contentment is, is, is just, it's a heart at peace, right? It's, it's a heart that's full. Discontentment is, is restlessness. Contentment is finding rest. Thankfully, God has designed a world full of things that we can find contentment, right? We can find contentment in a number of things in this world, but the Bible teaches us that there is a deeper, more lasting, and more satisfying contentment And it's counterintuitive. This leads to our third point. Contentment is cultivated in weakness. Leah is positioned in this chapter, right? Moses is writing intentionally to position Leah as the one who is at a disadvantage and the one who is unpromising. Right? Leah is unpromising. And in chapter 29, we read that Leah's eyes were weak, which means that, like, she was unattractive and that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, appearances, or in form and appearance, sorry. And because of this, and a number of reasons, Leah was hated. She's despised and rejected. And even though I've already pointed out like Leah's struggles uh, throughout this chapter, right? Struggling to get her husband's affections, she is primed for joy. And the reason we can see this is because time and again, her attention is shifted away from her husband to God. So in verses 31 and 30 to 35, she has three sons with the focus on uh, either her being hated or earning her husband's love. But then in verse 35, there's this surprising turn. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Later, when uh, Rachel gives Billah her servant to Jacob, Leah also gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob. And, and, and Leah, how she names her children, stands in direct contrast to Leah, or Rachel. I'm sorry, getting all these names confused. But Leah, right, she's like, here, have my servant Zilpah. Uh, and it doesn't seem like she's doing this in competition with her sister. She, she gives it to him because she's just ceased bearing children. And, and then she says, good fortune has come. So she named his name Gad and And then uh, Zilpah bore another son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. See how different that reaction is than than Rachel's? (laughs) Even even with her last son, right, there in in verse 20, like she's like, now my husband will honor me. There's still a mix of, of faith in there because she says, God has endowed me with a good endowment, right? So her focus is still on on God, even in that moment. You see, the thing that that Leah wanted above all was her husband's love. And if if you have been in an unloving relationship, you know what this feels like. And, And really, we don't have any indication in Scripture that Leah got what she was looking for, I don't think she ever got the love from Jacob that she really wanted. Think about that. She never got what in her heart she wanted above all else. But it was precisely in her lack that she found joyful contentment. 
That's what's counterintuitive about contentment in Scripture. It was found in lack. This is, this is precisely where the Bible's teaching is so counterintuitive. It's not securing those things that we think will bring us most joy. It's the things that collapse our security that bring us most joy. Because it's then we find the greatest source of joy and security, God Himself. Paul refused to boast in those things, right, that, that would bring him standing and security in life. So being a Jew, being a Hebrew, being a Pharisee, knowing the law, zealous for righteousness. Instead, he actually boasted in those things that reduced him. Right? He writes in 2 Corinthians, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. So Paul boasted in things, yeah, but he boasted in things that totally showed how weak and imperfect he was. Why? He writes after this, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I just think this is such an antidote to our American mindset to try to to fix things as, as quickly as possible and, and that the things that cripple us or reduce us or, or make us weak are, are problems that are robbing us of joy when, in fact, God has a plan for us in them, in those precise things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to seek cures and remedies and therapies and things like that, but I just don't want us to miss the kind of joyful contentment we can find in the presence of those things. What is it that's dismantling you right now? What's dismantling your comfort and your security and your standing? Whatever it is, it's exposing your weakness. And in God's sovereign grace, that is exactly what you need to be content. Praise God for that. And pray mightily for His grace. Right? This isn't just going to happen out of the blue. Pray mildly for God's grace. <laughs> that your weakness would be a source of, of strength in Him and joy. And this is tied directly to our next point. Contentment is cultivated in appraisal. Appraisal. So uh, I, I haven't completely finished it yet, um, but I'm reading a biography of the Lewis and Clark um, journey across the United States. And uh, he, he, uh, Lewis made one of the greatest accomplishments in human history, right, when he traversed the continent. I mean, he, he belongs in categories of Ferdinand Magellan and Christopher Columbus because he's going places where no white man has ever been before, right? And he's exploring completely unknown territory. And yet, he still wrote in his journal while on the journey. This is on his birthday, when he celebrated his birthday in the middle of going to the Pacific and going on this great adventure, he wrote, I reflected that I had done as, that I had as yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race. And only a few years later, he would attempt suicide. And there's um, a lot of unknowns about his death, but it may have been uh, death by suicide. 
Lewis had an ongoing battle with depression, right? Uh, And so there's nothing that can take away from that. But his attitude about not contributing anything beneficial, despite the very thing that he was doing at that that time, and despite his great achievements, reveals he was looking for something, something that would give him worth. There are many things out in the world that promise worth, right? So uh, on social media, it's the worth of showing other people how grand your life is. You know, and it's kind of like a trend on, on Instagram that, that your life will be worthy if you just load up in a van and go explore the world and see the world. Uh, if it Sometimes that promises in health, it's, it's the worth of how your body looks or how your body appears. It's it, in society. It's it's the worth that comes with self-assertion. Assert yourself. But Leah didn't have a, a lot of worth from worldly standards. Leah was unvaluable in the world's eyes. But this is a classic story that shows us that God does not see how we see. We judge based on what we see, right? On beauty, on age, ability, skill, where we stand on like societal issues. We we judge, we humans judge somebody else's worth based on all of those things and more. We create our own law in effect. We all do this, even in churches, right? It's, It's those who are attractive by some metric or those with a lot to offer that we give the most credit to and the most attention. But remember Moses, if Moses was our leader, he'd be talking with us like a stutter right now. We'd be saying, no, get get somebody else on the stage. Paul apparently was weak in stature. So when we act like this, we're not acting with the eyes of God. Rachel was highly esteemed in the world's eyes, and I have to tell you, even though we have this story, we'd still be tempted to do the same today, is to esteem Rachel. But Leah was highly esteemed in God's eyes. And this is, this is what I mean when I say contentment is cultivated in appraisal. Contentment happens when our appraisal of things isn't according to our natural human standards, but according to God's standards. Contentment happens, in other words, when we find valuable what God finds valuable. I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible teaches the story of Lee and Rachel. It's, it's a kid's Bible. And um, it's, it's, it's great. If you're a parent, I recommend it. Jesus Storybook Bible. And it frames the story. Uh, the title is The Girl No One Wanted. And it tells Leah's story this way. No one loves me, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when he saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her especially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest. Someone had chosen her, someone who did love her. Contentment happens when our appraisal of God's love 
is infinitely more valuable than all the love the world could ever show. God did choose Leah especially. Leah gave birth to Judah, who would become the Israelite tribe of of royalty. God promised Abraham and Isaac that kings would come from them, and those kings will come from Judah. And one of Leah's offspring himself would come, and he would look unvaluable to the world. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we read about him. We read about how unvaluable and unattractive and unbeautiful he was. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, what Isaiah depicts for us and what was true of Jesus' life is that the treasure of heaven became unvaluable. The radiant beauty of the Father became unbeautiful. The, The worthy one became unworthy for us. This is our God and this is our Savior. We are unlovely in our sin. But our Savior became unlovely for us and in Him and by faith in Him we are, we are made lovely and made whole again in God's sight. Our hearts are restless. We're, we're searching for worth. We're always performing and it wears us out and it drains our contentment and it kills it. But in Christ, our Savior, by His grace, we can find great, glad contentment. Let's respond to Leah's offspring, our wonderful Savior, this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are a beautiful Savior, precisely because You became unassuming, unattractive, no having no beauty about you that we should even take a second glance at you. And you hung out with those who were unlovely and unlovable, blind, lame, demon-possessed, paralyzed, deaf, mute, sick, diseased. 
You are the God of the unlovely. Not of those who have it all together. Not the God of those who think of themselves as unique or special, but the God of the unlovable, the unlovely, of whom we are the foremost. We are unlovely, Lord, because of our sin, but in Christ, You make us holy, You make us whole. You love us with an everlasting love because You gave us the King. The King in the line of Judah to live on our behalf and die on the cross for our sins and He lives again. We pray, Lord, for greater faith in Him and great discontentment with what the world tantalizes us with and great glad contentment in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, please, as we close.